Ion channels, G proteins, receptor subunit proteins, many of these concepts were developed after we received our training. What does the practicing clinician need to know about how neurotransmitters work? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. George Viamontes. Dr. Viamontes is Regional Medical Director of United Behavioral Health in St. Louis and Assistant Clinical Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Missouri in Columbia. He is active in the implementation of neural network predictive models for use in targeted disease management and is currently preparing a book to be published later this year entitled An Atlas of Neurobiology, How the Brain Creates the Self. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Viamontes. It's my pleasure to be here, Dr. Lund. Now, you recently wrote a review of signal transduction in the psychiatric annals. What especially caught my eye were the beautiful illustrations, and I noticed that you own the copyright on them. Tell us about how you are able to visually represent these complicated concepts so elegantly. You are very kind. You know, all through my life, I've really enjoyed creating art. I used to do big acrylic paintings, very realistic things, and uh, I did airbrushings, detailed pencil drawings, and I actually trained informally with a very famous artist who is deceased but would love to recognize him, Mr. Siegfried Reinhardt. He was a brilliant artist who actually painted a magnificent mural in the St. Louis airport, and he was a family friend, so I used to go watch him paint, and he taught me many, many, many things. And so I have actually translated my love of art to science. And so I really have stopped creating conventional art, and now I do art on the computer. I use a graphic tablet, and I own many three-dimensional models. So I can actually now paint in Photoshop and make paintings just like I would with acrylics or airbrushes. Well, they're beautiful illustrations. Um, Anybody listening, if you go to the Psychiatric Annals, April uh, 2008 edition, you can see some of his work. But I'm hoping they'll be in your upcoming book as well. They are giving me a fully illustrated book, which is actually a rarity. So the whole book will be full color. So I'm continuously creating illustrations for my book. And, you know, the other thing that I'm going to have in my book, which I actually have licensed, is a very gorgeous sequence of serial slices of a plastinated brain. So I have uh, slices in three different orientations. So you'll see the brain structures in a resolution that really hasn't been published. Fantastic. Well, let's get to the topic at hand. Walk us through signal transduction at the neuronal level, starting maybe with ion channels. Okay. As you know, in way of introduction, information processing in the brain is primarily carried out by the individual functional cells that we call neurons. And of course, neurons use ion flows to transmit information. And these ion flows are controlled by a variety of molecular switches, which include receptors and transporters. And the brain itself supports four general types of signal transduction at the level of the neuronal membrane. And let's begin with the first type, which is the use of ion channels. And as you may know, ion channels are actually passageways between the extracellular milieu and the intercellular space. So it allows things to go in and out of neurons, and they can pass through the membrane. You know, most ions, all ions actually are charged, and the membrane, which has carbon tails on its inside repel charged particles. So unless you have ion channels, the ions really can't cross in and out of the cell. So what is interesting is that movement of 
molecules through ion channels is driven by electrical and concentration gradients. So if something is more concentrated on one side, it will tend to flow from the high concentration to the low concentration. And so in neurons, the actual resting membrane potential is negative. And some of the things to remember is that the potassium concentrations are highest intracellularly, whereas sodium chloride and calcium concentrations are higher extracellularly. So sodium chloride and calcium will naturally flow into the neuron if you open up their respective ion channels, whereas potassium will flow out of the neuron and will actually hyperpolarize the neuron. So if you open up a potassium channel, the neuron will be harder to trigger because positive charges flow out. If you open up a chloride channel, chloride flows into the neuron and it hyperpolarizes it also, making it harder to trigger. And when you want to do an action potential, what you actually do is you open up a sodium channel, let lots of sodium into the neuron, the neuron depolarizes, and then in order to revert back to the normal state, you open up a voltage-sensitive potassium channel. Potassium charges flow out of the neuron and sort of actually they overshoot the normal resting potential, and then there are sodium-potassium pumps in the membrane that require energy that actually restore the normal ionic balance. Basically... Signal transduction by ion channel involves either hyperpolarizing or depolarizing a neuron by opening up the respective ion channels. And I think this gets us to a couple of really interesting neurotransmitters that are very, very important clinically, which are GABA and also glutamate. And certainly many of our medications work on these two neurotransmitters. Yes, and actually some of our drugs of abuse also. Right, right. So how does this understanding of ion channels help us to understand drugs like benzodiazepines, for example? Okay, well, benzodiazepines are drugs that bind specifically to GABA-A channels. And the GABA-A channel is basically a channel that allows chloride to flow into neurons. And it is normally activated by the neurotransmitter called GABA or gamma-aminobutyric acid. And so basically, GABA channels are located throughout the brain, and they basically modulate brain signals and don't allow things to get too strong. In fact, you know, some of the things that activate GABA channels are anticonvulsants. And so what is interesting is that when you bind a benzodiazepine to a GABA channel, it prevents GABA from falling off the receptor. So it makes the channel remain open longer. And so basically it hyperpolarizes about 80% of the brain. So when somebody takes GABA in, and, you know, it, it works in their brain, about 80% of their brain is harder to trigger. And so that causes the benefits of not having things like anxiety, but also can cause problems with, you know, motor actions like driving a car, etc. Now, does alcohol work in a similar way? Well, alcohol can non-specifically activate GABA channels, and its actions would be additive to those of GABA. And now the other really interesting neurotransmitter with respect to ion channels is, of course, glutamate. Glutamate is the most important stimulatory neurotransmitter in the brain, and it is the one that is used to transmit information. The other interesting thing about glutamate is that there's no free glutamate in the brain. Some of the damage from a stroke is caused by the breakdown of neurons and the release of large amounts of glutamate, which then excite neighboring cells to death, literally. Mm-hmm. So this is a real active area of research. But glutamate receptors are really very, very important, and they transmit all of the excitatory information through the brain. They actually are information-transmitting synapses or connections between cells. And what is interesting is that there are three main glutamate channels called AMPA, Kinate, and NMDA. 
And this is based on specific inhibitors that hit each of these channels. And I want to just briefly tell you about the NMDA channel because it's one of the most exciting of the glutamate channels. And this particular channel is thought to function in memory and learning. And the reason is that it is really pretty much of a coincidence detector because in order to open up an NMDA channel, which is actually a chloride and sodium channel, what you have to do is depolarize the neuron. So the neuron has to be activated by some other channel and then hit it with glutamate. So it takes two things. It takes depolarization of the neuron and also activation by glutamate. So when those two things happen, then this channel opens and basically you can then have neurotransmission through it. And, you know, this is the channel that basically is blocked by the substance called fencyclidine or PCP. So PCP can cause very, very, very dangerous effects because it blocks one of the main information channels in the brain. If you're new to our channel, you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. George Viamontes. We are discussing signal transduction at the neuronal level. Now, Dr. Viamontes, are there any other neurotransmitters that are best understood by looking at ion channels? Well, there's a couple of really interesting ones. One of them, of course, is the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, and this is the receptor that is responsible for the effects of nicotine. What is interesting is that we have nicotinic acetylcholine receptors in the ventral tegmental area, which is a region of the brain that releases dopamine to other parts of the brain. And most addictive substances activate dopamine released by the ventral tegmental area. And so this is exactly what nicotine does. Nicotine activates dopamine released by cells of the ventral tegmental area because they have nicotinic receptors. Now, what's interesting is that nicotine actually will deactivate its receptors very quickly. So in a matter of minutes to an hour or so, the nicotine no longer can activate receptors until you let them rest for a while. So this is why people who smoke enjoy the first cigarette of the day much more than the ones throughout the day. But it keeps them smoking, right? It keeps them smoking because of the release of dopamine into the nucleus accumbens from the mental tegmental area. Now, the other receptor that is really an ion channel is the serotonin 5-HT3 receptor. And this is an interesting receptor because it's present throughout the GI tract and also in the area postrema of the brain, which is an important nausea center in the floor of the fourth ventricle right next to the obex. And what is interesting is that we have a variety of agents that can block 5-HT3 receptors. And one of the ones that I wanted to tell you about, because I have a really interesting clinical case, is the antidepressant called mirtazapine. And mirtazapine is a very interesting antidepressant because it doesn't work by blocking reuptake of either serotonin or norepinephrine. It actually works its antidepressant effects by stimulating the release of norepinephrine and serotonin. But in addition, it also blocks serotonin 5-HT3 receptors, and it has antiemetic properties. And I'll give you an example of a patient who really benefited from this. I come from a family of psychiatrists. My wife is a psychiatrist, my father is a psychiatrist, and my mother was a psychiatrist. Wow. So, <laughs> so, so actually, one day I was covering one of my dad's patients, and this was a patient who had just undergone cancer chemotherapy. She was very ill. She was very depressed. She couldn't sleep, and she had intractable nausea. So she ended up in the psychiatric unit, believe it or not, in the inpatient psychiatric unit, and mirtazapine had just come on the market. And I said, well, you know, there's a medication that may be helpful to you. And she said, I'll try anything. I really just, just can't function. I gave her a dose of mirtazapine. 
And mirtazapine has tremendous effects that are sleep-promoting. So the patient slept all night. The nausea was completely gone. And you know what? She walked out of the unit the very next morning like a new person. She thought it was a miracle drug. But, of course, the downside is for those of us that don't have intractable nausea, it can cause tremendous weight gain, right? Yes. There are certain categories of patients for whom that isn't a problem. And so those are the patients that you would want to use that on. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. We've been talking about ion channels with our guest today, Dr. George Viamontes. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, you'll receive six months of free streaming for your home or office. If you have comments or suggestions, give us a ring at 888-MD-XM157. Thank you for listening. 